1972, the Apollo 17 mission took a composite image of Earth. It was known as the Blue Marble. And this was the first time we saw the place that billions of people and billions of species grow in and live their whole lives on and return back into. It's the first time we saw in its entirety the place that we call home. And when you think about it and look at the Earth from that perspective, it becomes so clear that we're all connected, that the forests halfway around the world provide oxygen for us to breathe, that the water that you know, falls from one cloud sort of evaporates back up into another cloud and falls on someone else, that, that you know, sort of one person's destiny is sort of intimately tied to your own. All of us are part of the systems that we think are broken, but we can also be part of the systems that we think need to change and part of the solution. The introduction to this episode was borrowed from the Scaling to Zero podcast hosted by Don Lippard. Don is the CEO of the Elemental Accelerator, focused on scaling climate and social equity solutions. Before we dive in, I would like to acknowledge that the Designing with Intention podcast is being hosted in the ancestral homelands of the Narragansett Nation, what is now called College Hill. Indigenous people from many nations, near and far, live, study, and work in Providence today. The amplification of native voices and histories is crucial to rectifying the many violent legacies of colonialism, and I gratefully acknowledge the ongoing critical contributions of Indigenous people across the state, region, nation, and the world. Welcome everyone to the Designing with Intention podcast. Today, we're joined by Peter Dean, who is a faculty member at the prestigious Rhode Island School of Design, where he played a crucial role in developing the Nature Culture Sustainability Concentration. Peter was a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council, a think tank devoted to tracking and influencing global transition to renewable sources of energy. Peter has inspired hundreds, if not thousands of young minds, including me, to pursue the good fight against climate change and has devoted his life to the education of young designers by exposing them to exemplary global projects that implement novel and effective strategies to global sustainability. Peter, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. I am in your hands, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> Peter, maybe we can start by learning a bit more about what drew you to sustainability and if intentionality played a role in your drive to pursue and accomplish everything that you do today? You know, the, the, the question there is, is really a, a profound one that pretty much anybody can be asked and should be asked. Um, my sort of start in all of this was as a very young man, a young boy, really. I was a, uh, we lived uh, near the water, near the ocean, and every minute I could, I spent either in it or on it. And um, that was really a, a Huck Finn, Tom Sawyer type of life. Um, and the ocean is a great teacher. Um, and then later on, 
um, I started, you know, sailing competitively and uh, competed around the world and in the Olympics in 1972 and the various world championships and whatnot. Um, but overall, the the experience of the competition, um, while uh, exciting and, and rewarding, uh, was not my real motivation. And when I got back to uh, feeling the connection between the wind and wave and a sail um, and never forgetting the the intimate connections there. It was really, um, you know, another sort of teaching moment, if you will. Then I was an architecture student at the Rhode Island School of Design back in the uh, 1970s. <laughs> Ancient history now, but nevertheless. Um, and I was um, really influenced uh, by one speech given by Buckminster Fuller up at Brown University. And I, I still bemoan the fact that I almost missed it. <laughs> uh, it turned out to be one of the most uh, influential experiences of my young life at the time. Um, and I was, um, Noel Fuller was introduced um, and spoke for two and a half hours without referring to a single note. He was eloquent, uh, efficient, totally understandable and um, just, you know, kind of a rapt attention from everybody in the audience. And um, afterwards, uh, there was an instantaneous standing ovation and um, the whole place was erupted simultaneously and to the point where I thought the building was gonna come down. <laughs> I mean, it was that uh, vociferous. Anyway, at the end of which, and this is the most important takeaway, for me anyway at the time, Fuller sauntered back to the podium and he said, you realize of course it is not me you applaud, but one another and your own potential. And after which, after he said that, he just went back and sat down and the applause was a little less <laughs> uh, vigorous, shall we say. And um, I think there's a reason for that. We have this tendency to um, abdicate our responsibility to others to those that we believe are, are um, you know, smarter or stronger or richer or whatever it is. Um, and in point of fact, we're well beyond that now where we each, each of us has to take responsibility. Um, and this has to do with the intentionality that, that uh, you mentioned in the lead-in. And I think it's important to understand that um, the good intentions are never enough. And um, I think it's important to understand that how you do something matters a lot. Um, and, you know, you, sadly, not everybody has good intentions either. I mean, there are plenty of bad intentions, exploitive intentions, you name it. Um, and it all has to do with some sort of human entitlement, if you will, that uh, mm -hmm. we're here, we can do what we please and uh, the devil take the hindmost. But the, of course, the reality now is, and we're beginning to realize this, these chickens come home to roost, if you'll pardon another axiomatic colloquialism. Um, and and they, there's there's no way, right? It all comes home. Yeah. So that was my, my, my formative years as far as the uh, design intentionality. Fuller was instrumental in that. Thanks so much for sharing that, Peter. That's uh, really inspiring.
So when you think about designing with intention, how does biodesign play a role in that? And if for our listeners, can you even if you can speak a bit more about what biodesign is for someone who might not know, um, that might be really helpful. Okay, well, the way I de uh, define biodesign comes out of the, the sort of the biomimetic world, if you will, where um, we take uh, or we treat nature um, as a mentor and as a measure of, uh, against which we measure our own um, efforts. And, um, you know, it, it's uh, once you delve into this uh, and begin to understand the astonishing efficiencies and beauty of and, and the geometries and, and the, um, the connections and the relationships, uh, th th this wonderful, you know, sort of four billion year arc of increasing complexity um, and the ability to, to um, sort of sit at the foot of the master, if you will. <laughs> uh, this requires a, a level of human humility that uh, as a rule, we're not actually very good at. <laughs> we like to think we're clever and we like to think we can design our way out of anything. And um, sadly, most often we design ourselves into something that doesn't turn out to be very good so or enduring. So it, to me, it, it, biodesign is this, it's a change of attitude primarily. Uh, instead of learning about nature, we learn from nature, right? And it's a very, um, again, it requires human humility. It requires um, the training of one's eyes uh, and one's ears and one's nose and <laughs> the senses we have to work with to really um, um, absorb what nature has been trying to teach us all these years, right? Yeah. And that's so fascinating. And that kind of makes me think about the role of systems thinking and how we can leverage uh, systems thinking to um, kind of shift our approach towards learning from nature. And um, how do you think, what do you think is the role of systems thinking in the world that we live in today? Um, sadly, it's not really uh, very prevalent, frankly. Um, you see it uh, in, in spots and places and some really interesting writing that I think is happening more and more. Um, but the, um, in the educational world, systems thinking has not been front and center by any means. Frankly, I do believe that we should start this education in kindergarten. Um, so that kids are just basically inculcated with this way of seeing the world, which is much more appropriate for what the world is and how it behaves. Um, and how, uh, you know, thinking of, of a system and where one's humanity fits in that system, um, I think is, is something that's absolutely key. And if we can do that in, in ways that uh, sort of, um, include the whole of us, um, I think is the best way for anyone to lead a life of meaning. It's fascinating. Um, one of the things that I've been wondering recently, I was listening to a podcast on Freakonomics and it was an episode which basically uh, talked about the dichotomy between um, solving climate change as uh, a profit 
um, and as a warrior. So the warriors are very much kind of solutions oriented and thinking about technology will basically get us out of this crisis. And the prophets are very much saying that um, it's all about human behavior and that's what we should focus on. Um, I wonder where do you sit uh, on that scale between prophet and warrior? Well, we need them both. Uh, the profit motive is not an evil thing uh, when applied properly. Um, and I can suggest that once the profit motive is um, uh, sort of um, enlisted in a good intention, um, many times all you have to do is get out of the way. <laughs> um, but the, the, the warrior aspect of this is critical. Um, I mean, most people would just, eh, no big deal, you know, it'll take care of itself. The world will be here, you know, la da 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 da. Um, and of course, the, we're getting to the point now where you cannot actually uh, sustain that point of view without denial, right? And sadly, denial is a very powerful and often used coping mechanism. Um, and of course, you, know, you, you can deny things until it happens to you, <laughs> at which point, oops, you have to pay attention. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's so interesting. Um, when I was wondering, what is your favorite childhood memory from um, about nature? Um, is, is there one that you would like to share with our listeners? Yeah, no, I, I as I mentioned earlier, I, I was... Um, grew up near the water. We used to take a cottage uh, that was right on the beach during the summer. And um, when I say right on the beach, every summer we'd get there and our first job was to shovel the beach stones off the front porch <laughs> that had been put there by all the winter, winter storms, nor'easters in this case in, in Massachusetts. And um, I mean, it was just a wonderful um, place to be. There was a natural rock jetty that went off to the right and um, I would play on that for hours of the day. There was parts of the rocks that you would look at and, and uh, say, oh, this is shaped like a sofa. So we all used to sit there and watch the waves crash and stuff. And there were places at a certain tide when the water would squirt right up through the, uh, through the rock when a wave came ashore. Um, I mean, it was just endlessly entertaining. Uh, and as a kid, it's just like fantasy land for me. Um, so that was, um, you know, kind of a uh, formative moment. My dad had a had a, um, a small launch, and periodically we would um, all pile in and head out to ride the waves of the Provincetown steamer that used to go from Boston to Provincetown, um, and that was always fun. And right offshore was the was Minot's Light, and Minot's Light was a is a storied uh, lighthouse. Um, and it was the first one was built in 1850 and then destroyed in 1851 during a hurricane. And then the uh, a, a, a granite lighthouse was put in its place and it's been there ever since. Um, and its call signal is 143, th uh, which we interpreted as I love you. <laughs> so the, 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 this beacon in the, in the unconscious, if you will, of the ocean was, was a uh, became a friend, if you will, right? So you, you have this uh, connection to the water. You're on land, but you're 
your uh, the water is everywhere uh, you see the tides the six hour variation between high and low tide <clears throat> you fish <laughs> you eat the fish uh, you clam you do all kinds of uh, these activities that um, are just uh, we're just the beneficiary of, of, of nature's abundance in situations like this. Now, keep in mind, this is back in the late 1950s. <laughs> so uh, things are very different now. Um, but anyway, um, my um, experience with the water is probably the, the, uh, the main thing. And then we moved, we bought a place in, in uh, Marion, Mass. And uh, there was a seasonal creek uh, that ran through part of the property. And I would just spend hours just hours playing there as a little boy, um, happy as a clam, <laughs> and not not having a care in the world, just watching the water flow and putting a rock here and seeing how the water moved around it. I mean, really, uh, it was it was intimate and it was um, enjoyable. So that yeah. was my sort of nature exposure early on. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I can definitely relate. You know, when I moved from New Delhi, which is landlocked, to Vancouver, British Columbia. I think my relationship with nature changed uh, because of the proximity to the ocean. There were beaches pretty much on campus and I would just go there and it just really changes how you view the world, in my opinion, and how you think about your positionality um, with the world. And yeah, yeah, I, um, really, I really agree. And you know, this one of the saddest parts is that, you know, the, as the world's population continues to migrate to cities, um, it becomes less and less likely that young people will ever see the stars the way anybody who's been on the ocean or in a very rural place where there's no light pollution enjoys on a nightly basis. Um, it, it, it's um, something we should pay attention to. Mm -hmm. No, definitely. Um, so thinking about our relationship with nature, um, what are some of the actionable things that you think young people today can do um, to um, spearhead and kind of contribute to the good fight against climate change? I think, you know, there's all these pressures to uh, kind of be like sustaining the world. We have urbanization, we have rising inequality. And a lot of the times the issue of sustainability and climate change can be so complex for someone to even wrap their head around that someone who is just starting out their career can just feel overwhelmed and almost helpless. And I wonder if you have any advice for folks um, who are just starting out their career um, to um, basically join uh, the good fight, if I can put it that way. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, uh, systems comes to mind again. Actually, climate change is not the problem. Climate change is a symptom of a system that is out of balance. And there are many symptoms caused by climate change um, there's water issues, there's issues of drought and fire and, and all manner of pollution. And all these things are, are the symptoms of a system 
that is has gone awry, if you will. And um, so, for instance, in dealing with one of the symptoms, um, that and say you may even make a difference in that symptom, right? Say you solve that problem, right? The fact is, that's what we call a first order change. But then you still have the imbalance in the system that created that symptom in the first place. And so without addressing that fundamental imbalance, you're going to create any number of more symptoms, right? So that addressing that, that uh, second order change in the system, in the imbalance that, that, that created the problem in the first place, you really don't have any enduring uh, solutions, right? And from a designer's point of view, the humble reality is that many, if not all of the current problems we're facing are the direct result of what were previously considered design solutions, right? This is humbling. And designers as a rule don't like humility. <laughs> They're all about, aren't I special, right? And um, this is again, an attitudinal adjustment that's required. Um, I mean, just in the world of architecture, the built environment is responsible for about 40% of the emissions that we struggle with globally and that are part of the cause, if you will, of, of climate change. Um, and understanding how that is and why that is, is important. And there are people, experts, that are really eloquent in describing exactly how um, uh, you know, the, the adjustment in, uh, in the CO2 levels in the atmosphere caused the problems we're seeing everywhere. Um, and it's irrefutable. <laughs> it's just plain common sense. And it's, you know, there's lots of science and lots of uh, you know, really deep dives into, into um, you know, data and whatnot. Um, but once you get to the, the overall view of it, it's undeniable that uh, humanity is at the at the is the root cause of this uh, particular exponential rise in CO2 and other methane and other greenhouse gases. And of course, water vapor, because things are warming up, the evaporation of water vapor itself, while not particularly noxious, but it's also a greenhouse gas, right? So it's important to understand how how these things work and how they're interconnected and how the the issues that we face are faceable um, and i i'm an eternal optimist i must confess and um, I, I do believe that when we get down to it and understand that we have the abilities to imagine a different future and to imagine it correctly um, i think it's really um, eminently doable but technology, people think, oh, technology is going to solve everything. We're going to need technology, God knows. But it's not going to solve everything. I mean, that to me is a, is a, a bit of a, what I call a technological excuse to continue making all the same mistakes we've been making for generations, right? <laughs> and, I, and I think that is uh, uh, problematic, clearly. Yeah. Now that's... It's really interesting and that makes me think about something that I've been focusing a lot in my graduate studies here at Brown University about the meaning and value of collaboration 
and why it's so much more important. I think coming from a world working in startups, for me, it was just the way of being because in a startup environment, you, you cannot get done anything individually. You need to collaborate with product managers to people from marketing really across the whole um, company. And um, when I came here, I think I got a very different perspective uh, from the world of design, how it hasn't traditionally been collaborative in many ways. And as you mentioned, it's very much about the self. Um, and so I wonder, how do you think the role of collaboration um, in propelling um, some of the things that you've been talking about? I think it's absolutely critical. Um, Carl Jung, the great Swiss psychologist, used to describe the unconscious as the direction we're currently not looking. And clearly, we're always not looking somewhere, right? And I do believe this is one of the reasons we need each other so desperately. Um, and I do believe the future belongs to the collaborative, uh, the, the, the power of two at a minimum. <laughs> you know, you, you just get, it's not just one plus one, it's, it's one plus one equals 25. Uh, you know, it, it's really an exponential increase in efficacy and in, into um, um, decision-making that I do believe is endurable um, because you, you, again, it's a system kind of approach. You may have a, a group of people like you just described where you have marketing, you have the, the um, uh, design team, you have the engineers, you have all of all this stuff working together. Um, if you can just expand that to sort of a global <laughs> uh, model um, where we, we have um, collaboration between um, nations, between, um, um, you know, experts and, and your average Joe, um, th th this is critical. And, you know, it's interesting, the, um, you've heard the expression out of the, out of the mouths of babes and angels, um, you know, you, you get insight um, and it, it's usually unschooled, right? It, it's somebody who, whose discipline is something else entirely. And they're looking at something they've never looked at before and they see it differently than you do who's expert, right? So the, 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 this is one of the reasons I believe that collaboration is uh, so effective and so um, hopeful, frankly. Oh, that's, that's fascinating. Uh, my last question to you today is, if you could go back and give your 18-year-old self one piece of advice, what would it be? Uh, uh, well, let's see. I would have started all of this a lot earlier. <laughs> I think I think is is what I would say. I mean, I, I went to fine schools, and uh, you know, I really had pretty much all the advantages that someone might hope for. And um, it wasn't until I myself, um, you know, got to the point where I was feeling dissatisfied uh, with um, what I was being taught, what I was learning, um, and the fact that there were parts of me that were disparate, that were seen differently by, by others. And the, the ability and the, the need to coalesce those different aspects of myself um, and focus into, you know, bring all of me uh, to focus into um, the work I was doing um, was uh, 
I think the, the thing that I would have started a whole lot earlier <laughs> had, I, had I known uh, the things I know now. And I, you know, I think also that is, that is the, um, the sort of the imperative of teaching, um, that, that you um, share what you wish you knew when you were your students' ages, right? Um, and it, it's, um, give them a head start, the way I think of it. And um, I mean, I'm no expert, right? Um, I mean, I'm, I've done my share of research and, and reading and, and uh, uh, meditation on issues. And um, I've, I've done a variety of, of study in different disciplines, architecture to theology to psychology. Um, but all the while, each one I was, I was immersed in understanding how it, how, what I brought to it as a, as a whole person, as a whole human, and um, how that was instrumental in making these connections in, in a systemic fashion. And of course, this is the way nature operates, um, just, you know, through, what is it, four billion years of evolution, um, nature learned. <laughs> and nature basically creates conditions that are conducive to life. And we tend to uh, think that's a human entitlement. Alas, not so much. <laughs> Well, Peter, thank you so much for taking the time today and You're for continuing to do what you do to inspire young minds. I've learned a lot from you so far, and I am really excited to continue to be learning from your practice and your uh, efforts to make the world a better place. Well, thank you, Regav. And let me hasten to add that I learn as much from my students as I do as they from me. So it, it's a, uh, two, I think teaching, is, uh, teaching and learning has always been a two-way street. And um, I admire my students in ways I, I probably don't realize. <laughs> but uh, anyway, thank you. It's been a pleasure. And Thank you for lending us your ears with intention. If you like this episode, make sure to subscribe and follow us wherever you receive your podcast. Next week, we'll be back with another exciting guest to talk about what does it mean to design emerging technologies with intention. See you next week.